So you were growing up in Philadelphia, right? In Jersey City. In Jersey City, yeah. excuse me. So as a kid, what type of records did you have at home that you were listening to? Yeah. So um, parents were music, uh, you know, my mom and dad love 45s. So um, my first exposure to like a hit record would be um, my mom would get something that might be from Motown or it might be something local because, you know, and um, with a 45, you play the record and then you, she would just put the needle back at the beginning. And literally, if she liked the song on 45, you just play it all day for three days, go back and forth. And if she was in the kitchen or you would like put put the record back on. And so I would like put the needle. I had this relationship with touching the actual needle putting it back at the beginning. If I'm playing outside, she called you. I was like, put, put my record back on. And the first record that I, that I remember doing that to extensively was a song called Sunny. I don't know if you ever heard it. It's an it's a R&B uh, golden gem. Sunny, that, Sunny, yesterday my life was so complete. You smiled at me and really eased the pain. Now the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true, I love you. Sunny, thank you for the sunshine you gave. Sunny, thank you for the love you brought my way. You're all in all, and now I feel ten feet tall. Sunny one, so true, I love you. Sunny, thank you for the truth you let me see. Sunny, thank you for the facts from A to Z. My life was torn like windblown sand Then a rock was formed when we held hands Sunny, Sunny one so true, I love you Sunny, thank you for that smile upon your face mm, Sunny, thank you, thank you for that thing that flows with grace you're my spark of nature's fire. You're my sweet, complete desire. Sunny one, so true. Yes, I love you. Sunny, yesterday all my life was filled with rain. Sunny, you smiled at me and really, really dark days are done and the bright days are here my sunny one shines so sincere sunny one so true i love you i love you So yeah, that's when I start, first started loving music, and then my second relationship is my older brother um, was in Vietnam, 
and my mother would send him care packages, you know, um, while he was stationed in Vietnam. And she would literally put records in the care package with Jiffy Pop popcorn and cigarettes and, you know, whatever cologne, whatever she thought would make him feel good when he opened it up. And so I remember going to the record stores and getting records and then really falling in love with music. And um, and so through those two, my, my, my parents and my older siblings, then I just fell in love with this vinyl. Yeah, yeah. So so that was when you first really got into music. And how did that translate to when you were throwing shows, going to shows in New York later on? Yeah. Jersey City and New York are so close. It's just really a subway ride away. The path, the path train, um, for a dollar, it's probably two dollars now, a metro card or whatever. But um, you can go from Jersey City, and then it drops you off. You had a it goes under the Hudson River, and then it starts uh, off back at Christopher Street in, in Greenwich Village, and then has stops every seven blocks until it gets to Madison Square Garden or Penn Station. So. Uh, it was nothing at a certain age. And then you hear, like, older people. You know how you idolize older kids? They go, like, yeah, we just came from New York. <sighs> just picked up some vinyl, you know, such and such having a party. And you go, oh, my God, oh, my God. So I couldn't wait for the time to go to New York. Um, so, uh, and and um, but the cultures were so close, I mean, because... Uh, Jersey City kids would go to New York to get records or to find out, you know, about early hip hop. The first time I heard of Africa Bambada, Cool Herc, uh, people, older kids were coming back and telling us these parties going over there. And um, I wanted to go to one. We, we were having parties too in Jersey. We started having hip hop parties in Jersey. As a matter of fact, um, um, Ducky Fresh's first record, Lottie Dottie, We Like the Party. You look at the label, and you'll see in the label recorded Jersey City, New Jersey. That's one of the things we're proud of. Cool mm. and the Gang is from Jersey City. They oh, no they went to the same high school I went to. Um, so and a lot of music talent came from Jersey City. But to really go to a good hip-hop party, you had to go to New York. Do you remember the first like real party that you went to in New York? Uh, kind of, because um, we got robbed. That you know, it wasn't for like who was at the party or the music or anything, um, it, because it was like if you're not in your neighborhood, you know. And I'm a little guy; you can see I'm only five six, so I wasn't. I was never a big guy, and the, the guy I was with is, was an, another like lightweight guy, and we didn't have. This is before we joined the Omicrons, so we just like like two guys. They like they not from around here, or whatever. And so we got violated, and you know, they're like, oh man, they took our coats. Luckily, they didn't take our shoes because that would have been like really bad to go back home to Jersey all the way with no shoes on because everybody could tell, like, you got robbed. So um, that's what made me want to join like a bigger crew. So when I went to parties, then I'm like, okay, I'm with somebody. So is that when you invo got involved with the Omicron? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the Omicrons, again, they were like more music. Like who gave the best parties or whatever, uh, and it was a, a social network. But it was also, you know, the hood began to get rougher and rougher, you know, in the, in the '80s, late '70s. You know, um, heroin was coming in just before crack, but uh, a lot of immigrants, migrants from the south, were moving in. Just got more competitive, and um, you know, our neighborhood experienced white flight, like really quick from the time I was, I think. We might have been the first black family when I was in the first grade. 
But by the time I got to the seventh grade, there was like only one white family. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm still friends with them. They never <laughs> left. They never left. And uh, uh, we're the, uh, me and their younger son, Louis, the same age. So, like, the parents were sincere about, hey, we're not moving because black people are moving in. You know, you, we need to get to know them or whatever because that was my first friend. And, you know, I don't know if they still live there to this day, but they never left when all the other white families moved away. And they got mad respect and love and everything like that. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so Paradise Garage, right? Yeah. Is definitely one of the most iconic clubs and the most influential clubs in New York. Yeah. Um, with Larry LeVon as the resident DJ. So do you remember how you got involved going there and how you started to go to that specific club? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, again, um, Paradise Garage was interesting. I don't re- never remember being like an age limit because they didn't serve alcohol. So people were going like 16, 17 years old that I knew uh, that would go over to New York a lot. And a lot of people who like you couldn't really be outwardly gay back in the day, especially in my neighborhood. But as we grew up, I'm like, oh, you know, they're, they're part of the gay community. I'm like, just, you're like, you're my party friend, you know? And I never thought about it. But um, I think my first gay friends who who maybe didn't identify, that I didn't know were gay uh, back in, in the, the days would come back uh, from the party, from Paradise Garage, and, like, explain it to you. Because, you know, you didn't have no phone, no video, and they would try to explain this, like, Loving, peaceful atmosphere. On Saturdays, it was strictly gay crowd. But on Fridays, um, it was mixed. And you could go and, and it'd be majority a Puerto Rican, black, Latino crowd, and, and white crowd. And um, just trying to explain it to you, but you had to have a membership to get in. So um, in order to go, you needed someone with a membership to get in. And they only did the membership drive once a year. So my first time going over there, um, went with a group of friends. And uh, Brother Mustafa was was the guy, because we used to work together, took us over there. And um, we just waited outside, probably rolled the joint, not a blunt, but, you know, rolled the joint, sat there. And a lot of people outside, the weather's nice on Friday, or whatever, a lot of people outside waiting and what you did was wait for somebody to offer you to get in so the i think it was 15 dollars to get in and the membership card cost 50 dollars for the year but if you were a member and you like hey i'll bring i think you could bring five guests with you so five times 15 that's 75 dollars he made plus he paid his own way in so it was cool for a member to let you in if they were by themselves or just one other person so, um, yeah, and then once you get in, like, all right, peace, thank you, you know. So that's how we got in through another member, and it was literally a, a garage um, where you had to walk up a ramp. It was an old taxi garage. I don't know if you ever saw that show, Taxi, uh, from the 70s. It's no. a famous show. But Taxi, the yellow cabs had this garage, and you drive up, and all the cabs are parked there. Cabs up there. So once that taxi business closed, they turned it into this uh, disco place. And um, you would walk up the ramp like a driveway, and then you could hear the music through the walls and coming in. And then there'd be a line. 
And um, I don't remember them, like, checking for, like, weapons or guns or patting you down. It's just stopped being love, like, as soon as you got there. And then the member would show his card and pay his $15, and then you'd go and pay. And uh, one thing that stands out is the staff there. Like, as soon as you got in, you were treated like a guest. And the staff would have these Black Paradise Garage shirts on. I can show you one in a little bit. Um and they would show you to a locker because, and the first time you like just checking it out, but people had told you, bring a change of clothes because you're going to be here until tomorrow morning and you might dance and sweat. So as uh, soon as you got there, they would show you where the locker rooms were and you can put your clothes in a locker um, or whatever, a little bit of weed, whatever you wanted. Um, and, uh, Baby powder, a lot of people would bring baby powder because um, the dance floor was made out of wood, like a wooden dance floor like you see in a dance studio. And when you put baby powder down, um, your feet would like, you could just really just flow mm. with the mu the music and just kind of dance and get into this trance of music. And uh, that's the first things I remember about being at the garage. And, and so what type of music? were you hearing so it was definitely the end of what the 70s set was disco just like four four beat boom 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 donna summers you know a lot of the disco records um that had were straight commercial it was a fad that uh, that the music scene went through um you know uh everybody was doing disco disco commercials disco sold everything this is america and the market had capitalized on it and uh, Larry Levin and um, another place called The Loft, DJ Frankie, they um, found records and B-sides that came out that weren't straight disco, but more um, gospel-tinged, definitely um, spoke to the gay community, uh, definitely had more soul to it, and um, would play these records. And um, you couldn't hear them on the radio. I mean, you could only hear them at the different clubs. And so were those like, were they just playing the straight B sides, or would they do like edits and play the edits? Or so there's a lot of people uh, that come into the story with uh, early garage loft. Um, first, uh, Richard Long did the sound system, and what the first thing that you noticed, like my second time going to the garage, what I noticed was the sound system, and Richard Long invented this thing called the crossover. So you could send uh, frequencies to like the bass bottoms or to the the the, the horns, the mid range, or to the tweeters. And the garage had tweeters coming down from the ceiling, like so, the highs. And so, uh, so you had this new discovery of of this crossover that could really, like, you could just be standing in the club and then they throw the bass in there and your chest is a moving. And then you're like, man, I don't even feel like dancing to the song. But you can't help it because the bass is like, oh, my God, I got I to gotta do something. Um, so that was a part of the garage, this new way of electronically reproducing music from vinyl. And, and, and the, the sound system was the layout. And that made Richard Long famous. And he did a lot of sound systems, and he went all over the world to create sound systems to duplicate the garage. And Larry Levan knew how to take advantage of that with certain records you know um and he would like larry van would just take out the bass for like 
two minutes and just play hi-hats and horns. And the lighting guy would work with Larry hand-in-hand hand up in the DJ booth, which was a who's who of everybody that was in New York that night at the garage in the DJ booth. But uh, they would shut off all the lights and just play the highs for a special, like a Shaka Khan song, like Clouds. I don't know if you heard that song. And then right in the chorus, like, boom, throw that bass in there. And the place would be electric.
So Richard Long uh, gets a lot of uh, props and uh, Walter Gibbons, that's his name. Walter Gibbons was the first one because this is before computers. Walter Gibbons, a lot of studios would give him their tape, their master tape, and Walter Gibbons would make a copy of it and then loop certain parts to make the record. Like the record was only like three minutes long when the artist cut it, but Walter Gibbs would loop the drum loop, um, repeat the chorus every eight bars, and then turn that in uh, to an independent record label. And then you had this 12-minute version of the song that was only three minutes. And one of the first songs he did that with was 10% by Double Exposure. It's a great song. 10% is something. 10% is something. And he took it and it made it 12 minutes long. And so he opened up the door because everybody wanted him to do their remix. And so he had this gift. He ends up uh, becoming saved and getting sanctified and just abruptly after like at the height of his uh, stint as a remixer just finds God and leaves the music industry. And like nobody ever sees him again. So that's the great story about Walt Wow. Yeah. Wow.
so so could you talk a little bit about like the impact that those kind of edits and remixes had like on just making house music and uh uh just the, how the paradise garage sound created this genre or, or was part of yeah. like making a whole new type of music the the one thing uh I, I you would remember especially if you only grew up in new jersey new york like i did i mean it's a big city but i've never been anywhere else but it was common for people to speak other languages like people from france to be there or german you would make friends there and um uh so i think people coming from all over the world knowing through that their social network that this is a place while you're in New York, this is where you have to go. And being free and being there, you know, yeah, you see somebody walking around with a, uh, just a G-string on or whatever, and they had pajama parties that kind of got out there. And, you know, I wasn't old enough to be into the sexual deviance. Uh, there's stuff going on at the Paradise Garage. I just wasn't like, I'm here to dance, man. But like right behind you could be like some stuff. <laughs> You're like, that's my song, got my baby powder on. <laughs> but I'm sure all kinds of, I, you know, unfortunately the AIDS crisis came and then you kind of look back and you realize that a lot of your friends from the Paradise Garage had gotten sick first. You know, that mm -hmm. community of house music and dance. So, you know, whatever was going on, I, I I just was not aware about as much as that as the music. But I definitely um, just not having, uh, I've never seen like a used condom at the garage. So I don't know if anybody was like having safe sex. But um, it was just a free, loving space. And um, definitely there's a great song, Find a Friend for the Weekend that Larry LeVan used to play. And um, I'm gonna find a friend for the weekend. And that happened a lot at the garage. And you know, you found somebody and the garage was on Friday, but you spent the whole weekend together and said goodbye like on Sunday or Monday morning when you had to go back to work. And you might never seen him again. You know, um, so culturally uh, the garage and had its part in sexual history and the AIDS crisis. Too. Right, and that was before LGBTQ people, gay people, yeah. had any type of acceptance in broader society, right? Yeah, there was, there was, well, and it, yeah, it, it definitely was, and it definitely exposed me to my limited, you know, growing up in my lim limited hood. You know, I fell in love with my first people that were gay at at the garage, and have relationships still to this day with people I met at the garage, and you know, uh, just so beautiful that sexuality, like. Whatever, it doesn't mean anything. You know, yeah. we love and respect each other. And, um, you know, I can remember dancing at the garage with just, if there were not women around, it wasn't like a place like, let me go find, as a heterosexual, let me go find a cute girl to dance with. Hey, if it's a six guys dancing and we're feeling what Larry's doing, we're just going to sweat, you know? So, um, so yeah, it, it was definitely uh, something. Um, and I think that's, kind of one of the most important places about electronic dance music today that people from all over the world and all kinds of cultures and races came to this place and then spread, you know, the music out there. So, um, yeah, Walter Gibbons, Richard Long, you have to give credit to. Um, you have to give... Larry LeVan was gay too, as well. And um, uh, I think Larry let it be okay to spike the punch. They didn't sell alcohol. 
but they had this wonderful staff, everything you wanted. Let's, let me show you where the locker rooms are. And they kept fresh fruit coming out all the time, like, because you would be exhausted. And so you go into this room and it'd be fresh fr- fruit laid out and it never was empty. I mean, nice thing. And then, of course, somebody would put, I guess it was mescaline in the punch. And so you had to know, and people would tell you, like, you know, how you feeling, because that's, if you're tired and you want to get, you know, get a release, drink that punch. And if you, you know, don't want to, then that's the punch you want. And so, yeah. Wow. And 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 Larry Levant actually died soon after that, right? After the closing. After the after that, the that's closing. what I mean. After the closing, so the yeah. club closed in in 1988, and then he died soon after that, right? In Japan, yeah, he went to do a gig. He wasn't feeling well. Um, uh, he, he, I think he still lived with his mom when he wasn't um, uh, out with his friends or living with his partner. Um, but he was very close to his mom. And Larry Levan and Timmy Regisford and uh, I think Tony Humphreys started playing together at the bathhouses in New York. Um, and that's where their friendship met. And I never went to a bathhouse. I was too young, and I don't, I don't think I would want to go. But um, I do have a flyer that they were passing out that saying, you know. So when the garage opened up, you know, people thought Larry Levan would be a good um, DJ to play to that community to the gay community that was going to bathhouses pretty pretty sure they had no idea that hip-hop kids would fall in love with the music and larry was so diverse you know in his music that he could you know swap songs so would he actually be playing hip-hop records up next to like a, i think a funk edit a, a disco edit or whatever i don't know if i've ever heard maybe one or two hip-hop records at the garage um so it wasn't it didn't attract your hip hop crowd. There was the Latin Quarter and Harlem Nights, Harlem World, um, other places that like you know, Russell Simmons would be out there uh in, in early in early performances by Treacherous Three and Grandmaster Flash and stuff like that that were doing hip hop parties. Hip hop parties wasn't ex, um as accepted and I think house music was because it was the throwback from disco. Um, that right. you know was commercialized like McDisco now, and this was like a little bit deeper. And so that's something else I wanted to ask you about. Was you mentioned the other day that you were friends with Schooly D and MC Shan, who are kind of legends in like the early days of hip hop, right? Yeah. Now I wouldn't say friends. I would say because you know we're promoting parties, so um, we definitely uh, promoted parties with MC Sham. And uh, people in my group, the Omicrons, were like his tour security. And like so from Boston all the way down to like Virginia, D.C. was one circuit. And so if you came out with a hip hop record, you know, nobody thought about traveling nationwide or going to Ohio or whatever. I mean, you had to have a really big song with a lot of big support. But you would do uh, you could do 20 shows easily just on the Eastern Seaboard. And so. um and again, hip hop artists were getting like robbed, you know, because you get you get paid at the door. There was no checks, there was no Bitcoin, or you put it in my account. Like you, just a cash money industry. So, um, you know, I'm blessed because I I got to know a lot of gangsters, you know, just stick up kids or whatever, you know that uh, that protected me and looked out for me, and because I'm a DJ. But also got to meet uh, like MC Sham because they were doing security for his tour, 
And um, Schooly D, D, we booked him to play at our college party. And um, you got to know him. um, And just little quirks about them, like like when they came to the show, uh, like Schooly... (laughs) Or his his rider, like an artist would give you their rider. Like, when I get there, you better have this or I'm not going on stage. Plus my money, but I want this. And Schooly D uh, had this thing where he, like, wanted all chicken breasts from, like, KFC and, like, cult 45s. They had to be 45s. They couldn't be, like, old English or whatever. And on ice and stuff like that. And then, um, it, but it was, they were balls. They were a blast. And um, the artists were, like, really cool. Um, but the, I, I would say the, the first artist, you might not have heard of this group, but the, these are kids that I know that I have relationship with. Like I even have relationship with their kids now is the double X posse. I'm not familiar. Yeah. They're, they're from Jersey city and, um, they came out with a song I'm not going to be able to do a, a couple of hits cause they, they played the fly girls and the Wayne's played their song on live in color. But, um, those are like, um, some of the and Dougie Fresh when he came out with the message, the show, those were like actually kids from Jersey City. Schoolie D and MC Shan were like invited because we were promoting parties. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Okay. And so during this period, you were also DJing yourself, right? Right, right. Um, and was that for like house parties, like or or what? What was the setting? Yeah, I because I couldn't scratch. Um, and you had to scratch, and I was more mesmerized by mixing, like beat mixing, like going from like one record to another record with the uh, with the crowd dancers not even knowing, right? You know that you switched the song, um, and making this this. Um, I've seen like people like in the closest I can relate related to is being in church, and like you ever see somebody just catch the Holy Ghost in church and not even care, and they have this like relationship with the deity of the holy ghost and just dancing so beat mixing allowed me you wouldn't get that at a hip-hop party you know you get like holding your balls like yo what up? <laughs> nigga, play that again you know uh so i kind of liked more of the house music vibe because i like watching dancers just get totally lost in music and stuff because i like i know that feeling no it's it's one of the best i was actually talking to my friend with about that last night one of the yeah. best one of the best feelings there is it I is it, it is. is i'm glad that that your generation is continuing that tradition i think you said once you were also actually recording records yes. at that time so i mean being in that circle um with a lot of recording artists like like again cool in the gang and um double x posse and dougie fresh and i'm sure there's names i'm forgetting i'm trying to look at my little facebook page here but um it's nothing to be on a car on a Friday or Saturday night driving around, and then the person you're in a car with, their record come on the radio. And like, oh, that's it! And you're like, oh, that's your shit, dog? And it was like such a cool feeling, and that I think I dedicated, you know, far too much time when I really could have been like, I was like gonna be, wanted to be like the baccalaureate of my graduating class in college. I'm like, that's not gonna happen because I'm more obsessed with putting out a track in New York radio too. You could, you could, you and your boys can make a track, walk it down to the radio station. Kind of like why so kind of like, I love why so. Cause you can actually like, I just made this last week, Would you play it. And you know, our DJs will play it. And for that to happen in New York and that number one market was really something. And um, so I wanted that high of, of doing that. 
Um, and I have good friend Yui Baby Harris who had a, a hit, You Gotta Be a Winner, that he, uh, he wrote it and produced it and sold it to Jimmy Cliff. And Jimmy Cliff came out with the song. So um, I was just like, man, I want that feeling. And it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I mean, you tried to get the records to uh, different DJs and, you know, just didn't happen. You know, a lot of stuff going on. Maybe women or, you know, or, or that. And definitely was a lot of drugs going on because um, you know, cheap coke and cheap heroin had inf infiltrated the community. And so I, a lot of people I hung with, you know, definitely were using. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've actually seen uh, one story that I remember. Have you heard of um, Naughty by Nature? No, I don't you think so. You down with OPP? Yeah, you know me. You down with, with Tretch? They're from Newark, where Queen Latifah and okay. Red Man are from. Okay. Uh, same neighborhood. And um, Tretch ended up marrying uh, DJ Spinner from Salt and Pepper. But, um, so that was like a big hip hop hit in the late 80s. I mean, uh, it was on commercials, everything. And I was in the studio with an artist that was recording, and he had the, uh, not that song, I'm sorry. Hip Hop Array, ho, hey, ho. It's called Hip Hop Array, I think. But that was, I was in the artist, I was in the studio with a crew, and the guy had that same hook. It was a different lyric and a whole different rhythm, but he was like, hey, ho, hey. And we were like, that's kind of catchy. You know, we hanging out in the studio, smoking, drinking, talking with the honeys. Like, that's a nice little hook. And, um, I, and I tell this to young people that you got to be focused because, you know, it takes sometimes five, six hours to work on a record. So you're taking a break or whatever. And um, I remember we was taking a break. Maybe the dude was working on lyrics or something like that. The engineer was changing out the tape or, 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 or just cleaning out the microphones or changing the cable. And I just remember because she was fine. This girl came to the studio and we like, cause every got everybody's attention, like body, face, hair, like like angel. I'm like she is fine, man, you know. And within 15 minutes, the rapper had left the studio session with the girl. <laughs> and like, we like, okay, you're not gonna finish your song, nothing, dog. And he never finished the song, you know. And we end up splitting. And maybe like six or seven months later, we hear Naughty by Nature on the radio. Hey. Hey, and I'm like, hey, that's not this. You know, the engineer must have been like, hey, this, 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 this is interesting. Right. Try this, you know. So you never know. But I learned a lot about being dedicated, and maybe that's why I probably hit record back then because I just didn't have the dedication. You know, not that I, I don't know. Maybe I would do the same thing back then. I don't know. Like, oh, I'll be back. <laughs> like never come back. With my money on the line, I like paid for the studio time and my producer paid for the studio time. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. I live in top of hip hop, this is hip hop of the day. I get props to 